Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yesterday we were talking about the essay, right? And today we are also talking about uh, the idea of how does Gron, John Grass look at the idea of the essay, right? And we are talking about the idea of the American essay and you have a man called Ralph Waldo Emerson which you perhaps might have heard of or may have not heard of, right? Uh, and that becomes interesting and very important, right? Largely because uh, wh what is happening is, oh no, yeah, what is happening is at that point of time when we're talking about Ra Ralph Waldo Emerson, yeah, Emerson is actually, uh, he belongs to a church which is called the Unitarian, uh, it's called the Trinitarian Church, yeah, because it believes in the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So it's called the Trinitarian. Then he joins another church, which is called a Unitarian Church, right? And then, of course, uh, he becomes a lay lecturer, right? He goes and gives public lectures, right? And he becomes very important because his lectures are very thoughtful lectures with a lot of uh, research and a lot of thinking, right? And he also belongs to a movement called the Transcendental Movement, which some of you might have read Edgar Allan Poe, and you might have heard of Hawthorne and Melville and Walt Whitman, right? And of course, Henry David Thoreau, who writes Walden, right? Yeah. So, uh, so this whole movement of people, they are also people who write very interesting essays, right? And very important essays because they are talking about uh, the identity and the culture of the United States, right? So that is something that you might like to look at. And uh, the idea, of course, is when you're talking about the essay, we're talking about how a speech is made into an essay, right? And a lot of the sermons in church are something that is written down. That's not really an American tradition, but that's a British tradition right from the time of John Dunn who's a poet right yeah he writes down his essays and of course many people come and take down uh, come to church just to take down his sermons and all of them are collected along with his uh, poems right so it's called songs and, songs and sermons right yeah of John Dunn and he has got sonnets also songs son sonnets and poems of John Dunn right yeah, and John Dunn is an important kind of a, uh, a Renaissance writer, yeah, in uh, England, right? So, what is the purpose of talking about this? Because the idea of the sermon is also very much like a lecture, right? And when you write them down and publish them, and many people in England do that, right? Yeah, so the sermon is also uh, a kind of a lecture, okay, which is given, right? And when you read some of the prose, you might, or oh, when I was teaching uh, this man called Thoreau, right, uh, and the book that he wrote was called Walden, right, and it was, it's an important book because it uses a kind of discourse which is called uh, a jerimiad, right, jerimiad, that's a kind of a scolding that you give to people right so his book though it's prose 
it's actually giving a scolding to people and this is something that you get with a kind of Christians which you call the Puritans, right? Which most Americans are actually out of the Puritan, Puritan stock, right? Yeah, so that's, they go from uh, Europe by the Mayflower, right? And most of them are Puritans, right? And what Thoreau, what Thoreau style of writing is, is what you call a Jeremiad, which the priest gives you in a church, in a Puritan church, right? Yeah, and they'll denounce you and you'll, they'll actually, and this is taken from a man called Jeremiah in the Bible, right? You can go and read Jeremiah and you get some very interesting kinds of ways of talking to people, right? He'll talk about people as bull, sheep and cattle, right? And that's how he addresses the people, right? So that's a scolding, a firing that you're getting. And uh, a lot of Thoreau's work that is in Walden is looked at as a firing, right? So that's a, a style of writing which is also important, right? That the question is, uh, because when we speak, you can identify it, right? But when you write also, you can identify it, right? Yeah? So we are talking about an essay and how or dif what different forms of essays do we get, right? So, um, and of course, the bad thing that is there in our syllabus is that our syllabus is talking about a formal essay, right? Now, what is a formal essay, right? So that's where we're coming to. We're talking about sermons. We're talking about speeches, public speeches, which become essays later, right? Yeah, for the Victorians and the American counterparts, the essay offered, though not all at once, a pulpit, an extension of the novel, a lecture platform, a diversion, right? Yeah, so the question is, uh, you want to extend your novel, write an essay, right? Yeah, you want to give a lecture to people and talk about what's going on in your country or what's going on in the world or what's going on in your religion, write an essay, right? Yeah, and it's also a very interesting thing to divert yourself and use it for creative writing and purposes of that, right? It also offers space, enough space to accommodate Carlyle's brilliant Harrods and Macaulay's incompatible history lessons, right? Now Macaulay, we know Macaulay. Macaulay was the Governor General of India. We know Macaulay because of his minute, right? That is the minute on English education, where he says that one chief of European literature is much more than all the literature uh, that you get in India, right? Yeah, that's one side of Macaulay, and that's why Macaulay is taught about as a horrible man, right? Yeah, and he was Governor General of India. But of course, there were people like Raja Ramon Roy who actually were on the side of this kind of a position, right? Yeah, and Raja Ramon Roy says, not Sanskritic education, but English education, for which he's thrown out of Hindu College, Calcutta, right? And I'm sure we know about Raja Ramon Roy, right? Uh, of course, we know about the Sati business and all that. That's what we learn in school. But the more important thing is the idea of getting a modern English education, right? Or what you call a modern English education, which is a kind of a European education for India, right? So, uh, we all make college children, by the way, right? Though people might not want to uh, acknowledge all that, but the idea of our system of education 
whether you're studying Gujarati or Sanskrit in a Sanskrit school or in a Gujarati school or a Marathi school or whatever that you do, right? Or uh, Malayalam or Assamese, wherever you you're from, right? Yeah, the system of education is a modern Western kind of education, right? Yeah, because when we talk about our system of education, right? It's something that is secular. It's supposed to be secular, right? Yeah, it might talk about religious subjects, but it's supposed to be secular. In as much as uh, you don't have uh, what we had in the past with the madrasa schools and the uh, and the what is this called the gurukul, right? Yeah, and these are not they are male organizations, the religious organizations, the caste based organizations, right? Yeah, and uh, when you have the modern system of education, you admit males and females, right? Yeah, or men and women, right? Uh, or today of course there's a question of all genders right so we admit all these kind of people in right yeah and we don't make a discrimination about benches right at least i hope that doesn't happen in some horrible places in india right yeah but otherwise we don't make a distinction of who is sitting on your bench right we don't practice untouchability and caste over here right yeah so that's what the modern system of education is supposed to be because we're talking about children as children, right? Without religion and we're talking about them. Okay, you might have your religion, all those things you might do, but when you're in a class, you're in a class and that's what's modern, right? Yeah, and no matter what happens, right? If that is something that we lose, right? Then a big part of the history is thrown into the gutter, right? Because there are people like Savitri by Fule, and Fatima Sheikh, right? Yeah, who actually fought for women's education, right? So I think these are important things to be thought about, right? And when we talk about the essay, right? And we talk about Macaulay, right? Macaulay is one person who was there, right? But then Jyoti Rao Fule, uh, uh, this woman called Fatima Sheikh, who we know very little about, right? She's one of the modern kind of uh, female leaders, a very important leader because they fought for education, right? And they fought for education for everybody, right? Irrespective uh, irrespective, and especially for women, right? Yeah, irrespective of religion or gender or caste or anything, right? The idea of education for everybody, that is what they did, right? Yeah, and of course today we want to put girls into the kitchen. That's what our erstwhile prime minister, when he was the chief minister said, Right? Yeah? And that's disgusting. Right? And we cannot, I would not like to ever do that. Okay? Because a child is a child. Right? Yeah? And we have to be, uh, Macaulay is definitely better than having all this kind of things. Okay? Though we have reservations about Macaulay. Right? And uh, the idea of what Macaulay says is almost like another person who is an Indian worshipper. Right? Says. And that's Wolfgang Goethe. Right? Yeah. So Bekale says one chef of European, uh, one chef of European literature is worth all the barbarical literature of India, right? And there's another person uh, from Germany who is Wolfgang von Goethe. He says one book of uh, that's uh, uh, Kalidasa Shakuntalam, right? And he dances with it on the head, and that's a big thing, right? And he says that look. All literature is contained in this book, right? Yeah, and of course you have other people saying 
the whole Quran, you don't need libraries, and that's where they burn down the library of Alexandria, right? Where they say, well, everything is contained in the Quran, right? Yeah. So that's the same kind of mentality all over the place, right? So uh, I don't buy any of those things, right? So we have to actually have different books, different people, different ideas, right? But by and large, even if we don't like them, they call it, right? And uh, yeah, they, we, so we have this kind of very complex relationship with what is called post-coloniality, right? Because I think yesterday we mentioned V.S. Naipaul, right? Who comes out of Indian origin, but because of coloniality, his family moves to uh, the Caribbeans as indentured laborers, right? We know about that story, about the, the idea of the Caribbeans and the whole Indian population where he goes and stays there, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, so that's one of the stories that we have, right? But, so that's because of colonial uh, colonialism, right? And we might hate colonialism, and maybe rightfully so, but what colonialism has done also has liberated a lot of people, right? Like, for instance, you get this thing called Goddess English, right? Which is actually about the idea of uh, the Dalits getting liberation because of the English language, right? And you have a temple to Goddess English, right? That's recent, and I've, I've just come to know about it, right? Uh, maybe about a year or two ago, right? So the question is, what happens over there? So Macaulay is not absolutely bad, okay? The idea of women and post-colonialism is again very important, right? Yeah? So we don't, well, I, I definitely wouldn't buy a man like Tukaram, uh, not, uh, a man like uh, Tukaram, uh, Tilak, who would spray his books with Gomutra, right? Yeah, because his wife touched them, right? So wh what is he doing over there? And that kind of thing, I think, is really disgusting because everybody is equal and you can't, you can't spray your books and you think cow's urine is better than... Uh, yeah, and I mean, all the contradictions about that, right? Yeah, so I think we, we need to think about all these things, right? Yeah, of course, we might have a huge amount of problems with the British and whatever they did, yeah, and that's what we do in English departments. We talk about this thing called post-coloniality, which we'll talk about when we are doing the essays, right? But since this, we're still at an introductory phase, right? We're talking about the post-colonial encounter, right? And when we're talking about the post-colonial encounter, the question is, what happens to women? What happens to Dalits? What happens to people who are upper caste, right? Yeah, and who think that the schools which are uh, these modern British schools are unclean, right? Yeah, and the question is, how are all of us? How do all of us have to be liberated to become modern? Which is what this man. Of course, you might have a problem with him, Raja Ram Roy, because uh, he advocates all these things. But when he goes to England, he takes Lord Coke, right? Because he's a high Brahmin, right? And he gets he'll get polluted if he eats anywhere else, right? But I think that was in the context that we are talking about, that might have been okay, right? Because uh, he already suffers badly enough, right? He's thrown out of Hindu college, right? Calcutta, right? He's not allowed to teach there, right? Yeah, so you might like to look at all those kind of stories. And uh, that's when uh, the idea of saying that uh, when we study English, we don't study politics, yeah? The language and the culture is full of politics, right? So as human beings, 
we are political creatures, right? Yeah, so that's something that we might like to get, yeah? And of course, we talked about Carlyle, and Carlyle has been thrown out of uh, British writers, right? Though in our conventional uh, literature courses, you have the age of Carlyle, right? Because of the idea of uh, glorifying the Germans and glorifying the German thinkers, right? He's been associated with Nazism, and that's something that the British don't want to, right? Though you have a lot of royalty, which also was very Nazi, right? And I, I think one of the, the people, except for the BNP, they have not had a fascist government up till now, right? Yeah? The BNP is a, uh, the British Nationalist Party, right? Which is, a, which is racist and terrible, yeah? And if that comes into work, right, it'll be probably worse than a government that we have, right? Because all the Indians of whatever origin will be thrown out, right? Yeah, and if they have an NRC and an NCA and all those kind of things there, right, then there'll be real chaos for the Pakistanis, for the Indians, for the Africans who have all settled in Britain, right? Yeah, okay. Too much space on occasion. Emerson, yeah, so the idea is uh, the essay has too much space, right? You can write a history lesson, right? The formal essay that we're talking about. Yeah, you can write a historical essay, right? Which is taking history into account. You can write about Indian culture, right? You can write about European culture. Or you can take one little bit of India and talk about the culture, right? Yeah, you can talk about the culture of a temple, right? Yeah, so that's what the essay gives you, right? And the idea of too much space is what's great about an essay because you can use an essay for different purposes, right? We must remember again that all our... Uh, all our lessons uh, are writing in the exams. I suppose yeah, you have write an essay, right? Or answer the question, right? And you have your 15 mark questions where all of them are essays, right? Yeah. Uh, too much space on occasion. Emerson with his genius for the aphorism and the pregnant observation was betrayed into impossible prolixity. Lesser men were encouraged to stretch material that was thin to start with even thinner, right? Yeah. Now the question is, you have people like Emerson, right? And he's using aphorisms, right? Aphorism, what is an aphorism? Yeah. Anybody quickly unmute and say, what is an aphorism? Aphorism, nobody knows. Aphorism is a set. Uh, a statement of general truth, right? Yeah, and after this, and so Emerson comes up with this whole idea of preserving the culture and talking about how America is wasting itself and all these kind of things. Nineteenth-century America, right? Yeah, that's before Vivekananda goes to the United States, right? And when I was teaching Emerson and Thoreau and the Transcendentalist, right, I kept telling my students, I said, well, if Emerson and Thoreau didn't happen, Vivekananda wouldn't happen. Right? Yeah? Because uh, these people used to read Indian texts, Chinese texts, Japanese texts, Buddhism, Islam, everything possible. Right? And of course, the bad thing is they call themselves Boston Brahmins, right? And uh, without understanding what, what are the implications of that, right? And even more important is if you have read Louisa May Alcott, some of you might have read it, uh, her, she is a person who writes. Little Women, right? 
and her father was Bronson A. Alcott, right? Who was a very, very important man because he starts the Brook, uh, the Brook Farm experiment, right? Yeah, and uh, sorry, the Fruitlands experiment. That's his experiment. Emerson and Thoreau's was a Brook, Brook Farm experiment, okay? And that's why Gandhi has this idea of uh, Tolstoy farm in Africa, etc. Right? So you can see, or you can trace all that. And I'm sorry, I'm taking you right to Gandhi, but that's important to know, right? Yeah, so the transcendental influence on Gandhi, because Gandhi reads Thoreau in South African jail, and all these bits of Puritanism and transcendentalism come into Gandhi, right? So that's influenced by uh, just reading these people, right? Yeah, uh, what is interesting is, uh, yeah, so uh, what happens over here is we're talking about the aphorisms, right? So aphorisms are all men must die, right? Yeah, that's a statement of general truth, right? So we get a lot of these kind of statements in Emerson, right? And uh, we talked about the idea of the epigram in Bacon. Yeah, when you talk about Emerson, we're talking about the idea of the uh, apost uh, the aphorism, right? And the pregnant observation, right? Yeah, now the question is, these people were very sharp observers, right? Like uh, we talked about Bronson A. Alcott, right? And they actually have this experiment in community living, right? Which both of them are a failure, right? They have three big experiments, one is this thing called the, uh, the Brook Farm Experiment, right? Where they're trying to sustain themselves on their own land, right? Without using any money, right? So you dig your own vegetables and it's, a ex uh, it's an enterprise in community living, right? So different people come and live together. They try to till their own land and it's somehow a failure, right? Yeah. But it's an important experiment, right? And then you have the Fruitlands experiment, which was done by Bronson A. Alcott. And I think I said just now that uh, they were called, they call themselves the Boston Brahmins, right? And they adopted customs like no eating fruit that goes underground, nothing under the ground, only things that are over the ground, right? So that's a great idea that they had. And that's from the, the Brahminical ideas of what is under the ground is dirty and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah, and what is even more interesting is the experiment fails because uh, in India you can do that. We have a warm climate, but in in the United States and when the the cold Boston winters, right? Uh, uh, the snow and all the the crops die off, the trees die off, right? And poor Bronson Alcott gets a nervous breakdown, right? Yeah, of course. He's a very, very important man because uh, he starts a school and he has a black boy coming to the school when the black people were still uh, almost slaves, right? Yeah. Slavery was still around, right? In uh, some of the places, right? Yeah. So, and even if they were not slaves, right? And uh, uh, that's when, this is, this is when Abraham Lincoln happens, yeah? And... Uh, this, the government closes down his school, right? Yeah, so that's something that is interesting to think about, especially when we have all these atrocities against the Dalits in India today, right? Yeah, for 
shouting at somebody, using somebody's water, using somebody's well, right? So we can imagine uh, what what kind of nonsense we are into, right? Yeah. So Bronson Aircott fought the government, right? And a human being is a human being, whether you're black or brown or white or Dalit or Brahmin or whatever you are, right? Or Muslim or Christian or whatever kind of uh, or superstitious or atheist or whatever you are, right? Yeah. So that's something important that happened over here, right? And uh, uh, but what was important is they were very keen observers, right? Uh, Emerson begins as a naturalist, right? His first book is on nature, right? Taking off from uh, the idea of uh, Bacon, right? And he's right, he wants to be a naturalist, right? So they actually observe nature, right? And Thoreau, the, the third experiment that I didn't talk about is Thoreau's Walden Pond experiment, where he goes and lives at Walden Pond and tries this kind of an idea of minimalism, which is something that comes into Gandhi also, right? Yeah, because we will talk about Gandhi and we'll have to talk about minimalism, right? And minimalism is a movement uh, which is very popular about among young people in India, in America, right? How do we live at the minimum, right? Which is what Thoreau does, what Emerson also tries to do, right? Yeah, they're talking about excessive waste in the United States 100 and, uh, 100 and odd years ago, right? And they're actually talking about how do we live at the minimum level, right? What is required, which is minimum, right? So please read Walden, right? The first chapter is economy, right? And he's talking about how can we live with the minimum, right? And what's interesting and really very interesting is after 100 years, 100 and odd years, almost 150 years, right, or more, right, there's a woman who goes and stays at Walden and builds a house just like Thoreau did. And Thoreau left a record, right, yeah. And however much it cost him, it was just a few dollars more, right, after 150 years, right. So you might like to look at the accounts over there, right, and talk about what happens and how do you go back to Walden Pond and of course Walden Pond is of course a very important kind of thing for a new kind of school of criticism which is called eco-criticism, right? Which is there today, right? And a lot of people, eco-critics go back to these people called the transcendentalists and they're talking about nature and talking about living in nature and not having all the technological gadgets and uh, preserving nature, right? Climate change is a kind of uh, very important thing for these environmental uh, people, right? Yeah. Uh, yet on the whole, 19th century essays, like the journals in which most of them first appeared, testify to a remarkable, rich cultural life. An anth anthology that was limited to a single decade of, uh, Victor of the Victorian age, perhaps even a single year, would still be able to draw on work of outstanding scope and quality, right? Now, there's uh, the Victorian age is the highest point in European in uh, the sorry, I didn't put on the on the camera, right? Uh, the highest point in the history of England, right? Because that's an imperial age, right? So that's the high point when the British Empire exists, right? And Queen Victoria is declared as the Empress of India and Africa and all those kind of places, right? Yeah, so 
women are like that, but that's the uh, the essay also becomes a very grand kind of essay because they have rich cultural uh, kind of essays, right? That are not easy to read. Okay, and we also have something called the Victorian sentence, which I might have talked about, right? The Victorian sentence is a long kind of sentence, right? Yeah, with a number of uh, uh, what what do you call them? Concatenating clauses, right? So you have one clause and another clause and another clause and another clause, right? And you actually have to take a breath to say the whole sentence, right? Yeah, and of course I had a very interesting colleague who was a part-time lecturer in North Gujarat University. Of course he died also when I was there, right? And he might have been in his 80s then, that's about 20 years ago, right? Uh, he had studied from Xavier's Bombay uh, under the English, under the British, right? When uh, India was still ruled by the British, right? And he used to actually give me, he was a Sanskrit teacher, but whenever he spoke to us, he used to speak with a Victorian sentence in mind, right? So we must remember that the age has changed and we're talking about sentences, right? So in the Victorian age, you have these long sentences which are called the periodic sentences, right? So it begins with a main clause and a subordinate clause and another subordinate clause and goes on and on and on. And uh, the idea is that's a very difficult style of writing and that's today it has probably gone away, but it was still alive in India 30 years ago, right? And I remember talking to an American professor uh, who was already quite old. He might have been in the 70s at that point of time, right? And what is interesting is, he says, I like the newspapers in India, right? We hadn't become internet then, right? When I was a, a little MPhil student, right? I was still an MPhil student then, right? And he says, we like, I like the Indian papers because you get these lovely long Victorian sentences, right? The long periodic sentence is something that is there in Victorian prose, right? So we must remember about all these things when we study prose, because I think we are actually talking about, what's that? Yeah, we're actually talking about how the age also influences the length of sentences, right? Today, uh, of course, I after I quit my university job and worked in a, in a dot com, right? Uh, one of the things that I had to learn is how do you write short sentences, right? Because if you write a long sentence, right, nobody's going to read it because we are in a different age, which is called the internet age, right? Yeah, so at the, in the Victorian age, people still had time to write a long sentence, right? Now, we're trying to get things down into simple sentences and not complex and compound complex sentences and all these Victorian kind of sentences, right? So you might like to look at all that and think about what is the structure of the sentences, right? And one of the things that I normally ask people to do when they're studying an essay or a letter or any kind of prose, count the sentences, right? And you might uh, wonder about that, but that's something that I learned from uh, my MPhil work, or not even my MPhil work, it's before that, which I, when I took up a, a subject called stylistics, they don't teach it in this university, they don't think about it, right? Which was interesting because one of the things that you do is you count the sentences, right? And that's a very, very objective kind of way of talking about an essay, right? Okay, and you might get some very surprising results, right? 
Yeah, because I think somebody was, I don't know where I heard this, somebody was talking about this American writer called Dr. O, right? Yeah, and uh, it's interesting, Billy Bathgate, right? That's the, the novel, right? right? And you find one sentence which is 13 lines long, right? Yeah, that's more than half, almost half a page or a little more, right? Yeah, and it's a very long sentence, right? And it's taken 13 lines, that's almost half your page, right? So how do you write those kinds of sentences, right? So uh, that's something that is interesting about studying prose if you want to study it, right? Of course, I know people have the ideas of passing the exam, but that's not studying, right? That's passing the exam, which you don't need to study for, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, fine. Uh, yet on the whole, 19th century essays like the journal in which most of them first appeared testify to a remarkable, rich cultural life, right? Even when we're talking about, many students come to me and say, well, I want to improve my English. I said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to read? Right? Read the Victorian novels. Read George Eliot. Read Hardy, read uh, Dickens, read, read, yeah, so read uh, Thackeray, read, read all these people because you'll get the idea of how sentences are written, right? And that's for you also, right? I don't think I need to mention it particularly, right? So read all the Victorian novels, right? You'll get the sentence structure and you'll get a command of the language, right? So that's something that uh, what John Ross says is important, right? Because we're actually talking about how do we improve our English, right? That's one. Maybe people have not come here for a literature course, right? When you say a live prose, what the hell is it, right? Like somebody phoned me up yesterday and told me, well, I'm not able to attend, right? And that's why I'm recording it and I'll put it up on your WhatsApp group, right? Yeah. But what is important is uh, when we are talking about prose, yeah, we are actually talking about all these things, right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, what is interesting and what is important is we have to talk about how do we improve our English, right? So, some people have joined this course thinking that taking English is has got a market value. Yes, it has. That's why a lot of us do English because we can get jobs, right? I might be interested in philosophy, but I, I may not get a job with philosophy and I might get a job with English, right? Yeah. And if you have English as your second language, maybe you will, right? That's, of course, the market way, right? But the question is, if you actually want to learn, right? Which is outside the university, outside the syllabus, right? Uh, because the syllabus is a minimal, right? And you can see that the syllabus, all the syllabi are bad, right? Yeah. Uh, not enough, right? The syllabus is supposed to be a sample of what you actually are supposed to learn, right? So you have to read many, many essays, right? And then you'll get the idea of an essay. And the newspaper, of course, because if you don't read the newspaper, you don't actually analyze sentence structure, the essay, the formation of the essay, the structure of the essay, all those kind of things. And the most important thing is, how do you compare one essayist and another essayist, right? Yeah, which I am going to definitely ask I don't know what other people are going to do, right? But I'm definitely going to do this and all the people who come to this course, right? And that's a skill that we have to learn, right? Because the university is meant to de-skill people, right? Yeah? And that's what we have been doing for a long time in India, right? How do we de-skill people? So that you go somewhere else and then you have to be re-skilled, right? 
Yeah, so try to get your skills up. And this is a skill, right? Reading is a skill, which is not easy. Writing is a skill, which is not easy, right? And many people think that these things are boring, right? They want to learn, and even speaking is linked up with reading and writing. The more you read, the better you will be as a speaker, right? Not only for content, but also for style, right? Yeah, because you read different people, you see the style, you get the expression, right? You, so all those kind of very complicated things happen, right? And I don't know whether I should go on talking about that because maybe we can have another lecture outside the course on the idea of the history of reading, right? Yeah. So the question is, what happens when you read? Okay, I think I've mentioned in it one of my earlier lectures, the rhythms of prose slowly settle down, right? Yeah, if you read a, 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 somebody uh, for a long period of time, then their kind of rhythms become your rhythms, right? Or some of it becomes your rhythm. And slowly, when you read many people of different kinds of ryth rhythms in their kind of way of writing, then you'll develop your own kind of rhythm and your own way of writing, right? And this is something, there's nothing that you can learn uh, in a second or in five minutes, right? This is a very slow process which happens almost non-consciously, right? Yeah, if you're conscious, so much the better, right? And that's why, uh, you, uh, that's why I'm mentioning it, right? But otherwise, uh, reading and reading slowly, right? Yeah, for a long period of time. Slowly means a long period of time. I'm not asking you to slow down your speed of reading, right? But uh, over a long period of time, you'll get sentence structures, you'll get rhythms, right? Of different kinds of authors, right? And you'll develop your own kind of rhythm, right? So that's the idea of the essay, right? And that's why essays are still popular, right? And they're still used in schools. Right? Yeah? Okay. Uh, yeah. An anthology that was limited to a single decade of the Victorian age, perhaps even a single year, would still be able to draw on work of outstanding scope and quality. Towards the end of the century, a change sets in. Uh, as you move forward from the mid-Victorian, you become aware of more and more essays being written for their own sake, rather than for the sake of the subject. There is a shift from matter to manner, from discussion to conversation. Okay, so the, the question is the matter of, right, the matter of your essay is the most important, right? The idea of content, right? What is contained in your essay, right? And you begin, English essays begin with Bacon, right? And Bacon writes on studies, on entertainment on whatever that is, right, yeah, on reading, on thinking, right, all those kind of things, and uh, Bacon has this epigrammatic style, which we talked about, right, yeah, and you get a lot of sentences, so the idea of the epigram is very important, because the epigram is a way of making you remember, yeah, so we have, maybe you can write it down, something called the epigram, right, we have something called the epitaph, right, and we have something called the epigraph, right? Yeah, so what are they? So the epi, uh, the epigraph, right, is something that uh, uh, you uh, uh, you write at the beginning of an essay, right? I don't know if I've got any essays to show them to you, right? But sometimes you might get something at the beginning of the essay, right? 
yeah and what happens over there is uh, you might uh, wonder what is the relationship between the epi uh, epigraph right and the rest of the essay right so it gives you a small little quote by somebody else right yeah so you might get emerson's quote you might get uh, longfellow's quote you might get plato you might get aristotle you might get anybody else right yeah like for instance uh, derrida writes his book on friendship right yeah and the first thing is my friend no friend that's what aristotle says right so if you are writing of an essay on friendship maybe one of the th first things that you can do is quote aristotle on the top and write my friend no friend right yeah so that's the content of your essay right and that's how you're talking about the idea of friendship right so maybe you might like to think about that and what bacon says is important reading make the whole person right the whole man he says but we can't say that today because we are post feminist right yeah we can't we can't even say that it's sexist to say reading make it the whole man right what about women right yeah and that's important right uh, yeah the essays of robert louis stevenson are one symptom of a new climate ethical studies conducted in a vagabond mood and there were plenty of lesser potents among stevenson's contemporaries right so uh, essay uh, this idea of robert louis stevenson right you might have studied him uh, as a poet right you might have studied him as an essayist right so you have uh, his famous book of essays called travels uh, travels on a donkey right yeah so the idea of going on donkey back and this idea of he's not the only one right uh, i think russell also has written about this uh, the idea of uh, yeah um, what is it not vagabondry but it's called uh, yeah the virtues of idleness right yeah you have you can look for them on the, the net the virtues of idleness right which russell is talking about and uh robert louis stevenson is also talking about right yeah robert louis stevenson becomes important uh especially because of his uh novel called dr jekyll and mr hyde right which many of you who are psychologist might be interested in right because it's talking about something called the split personality right and that's an interesting book to read yeah as a student as a school student uh, uh, i had to read it right because we had library classes and that's why we had to read all these kind of people right yeah uh, the essays of robert louis stevenson are one symptom of the new climate ethical studies conducted in a vagabond mood and there are plenty of lesser importance uh, among stevenson's contemporaries augustin birrell for example whose good humored whimsical music principally among books can be sampled in obita dicta and similar collections they were popular enough in their day to give rise to a new uh, literary term birling right yeah so the idea of birling is the idea of uh, what you call going about and writing about things which are not really uh, very formal right and you go about like a vagabond right you know what a vagabond is 
Yeah, a vagabond is a person who travels around without money or without anything. I go from one place to the other and uh, I collect whatever I get, right? Yeah, so that's the kind of thing that, uh, and that becomes a very popular kind of way of behavior, right? Yeah, so we're talking, I think yesterday we talked about travel writing, yeah? So the idea is uh, other travel, right? Now, today we talk about the backpacker, right? Yeah, uh, but a lot of travels are about people who go around as beggars, right? Yeah, and I just travel from one place to the other and uh, that's a way of learning and studying people, right? Yeah, because how does person treat me if I go as a beggar, right? Now that's not new, right? That's what many kings actually used to do, right? Go and that's what you have with Mark Twain's Prince and the Papa, right? Yeah, the king going around as a beggar, right? Yeah, and that's not new. You have that all over the place, right? Where the king goes in disguise as a, as a beggar, right? Yeah, and the question is how do people treat you as a beggar and how do they treat you as a king, right? <laughs> it's not very far from me, right? Because uh, when, of course, before the lockdown, right, we have to talk uh, about the lockdown, right? Yeah, whenever you go to a theater or to a, uh, a restaurant, right, where they have people who look after the, the gates, right, the, the watchmen, right? Now, if I go and cycle, they uh, India is a hierarchical country, we know, right? So when I go and cycle, these people shout at me and say, well, park your cycle, right? Yeah. And then if I go by car, they all salute, right? So you, you get those kind of funny experiences. So when you're a king and when you're a beggar, right? How do you experience people, right? The same people will be different to you. Uh, remember we talked about Kalai, and we talked about Sartorizatis, right? So when you go with grand clothes, they will treat you in one way, right? The idea of status, the idea of clothes, the idea of having a car and having a cycle, right? If you have a cycle, that means you're not even worth it, right? If you have a car, that means, yes, uh, the person is worth it, right? Yeah, so all those kind of stupid things are around and that's why uh, the idea of perspective becomes important when we talk about Robert Louis Stevenson, we're talking about Burton Russell, right? And Burton Russell says something very important, which our universities don't talk about, right? And our teachers have decayed very badly, right? Because you can read his long essay on education, right? I think everybody must, right? Because he's talking about a university. And a university, according to him, is where teachers should have enough time to think, right? Yeah. And of course, even if he says that, the Indian teacher doesn't want to think. They're more interested in share markets. They're more interested in property, right? They're more interested in doing all the bureaucratic stuff and uh, getting up the ladder, right? So that's the sad thing about the universities and that's why the universities are in such a miserable condition all over our country, right? Yeah, and of course the government uh, is, of course, a government which doesn't encourage education at all, right? Yeah. After Birrell came E.V. Lucas, Morris, I think we have E.V. Lucas, right? I think that's in the syllabus. Do we have E.V. Lucas in the syllabus? Maybe we don't. You don't have E.V. Lucas. Anyhow, there's a whole Indian section. Yep, fine. That's okay. Right? We don't have E.V. Lucas in that side. 
right? Yeah, it's uh, EVLOOKUP is very interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, one of the one of the short stories he writes is the man who loved Dickens, right? Anyhow, I don't want to talk about that. Uh, Morris Hewitt, Alpha of the Plow, Alpha of the Plow is a man called A. G. Gardiner, right? Robert Lind, right? Robert Lind is again interesting. Uh, yeah, you might have read him, Sweets, right? Yeah. Uh, so you have that's one of the things he's talking about sweets, right? And that becomes important and a very interesting, very humorous essay and talking about who eats sweets and all that kind of thing, right? Yeah, there's another one person you might like. He's called, he's not an Englishman. He's, he's a Hungarian and he's called Joy, uh, uh, look, uh, Joy Mikish, right? Yeah, and it's spelled as Mike's, M-I-K, yes, but this pronunciation is Mikish, right? Yeah, and he, he uh, one of his uh, interesting books is How to Be an Alien, right? Yeah, and he's talking about different cultures, right? He was called some time ago to write a book about India and make fun of our culture, right? Yeah, because he, he talks about culture in a very, very humorous way. And of course, the Indian government said, no, we can't do this because we can't laugh at ourselves, right? And we're taking ourselves too seriously. And that's exactly why we become fascist. And that's why we become so, uh, so dogmatic, right? Yeah. So the question is, uh, you have a lot of humor, right? He's talking about the British. He's talking about every culture and he's having giving you a laugh about that, right? Yeah. There's one way it's travel writing and is not travel writing. Yeah. So whether you take Lucas and the whole idea of mirroring is something that's important. Long rows of little books bear witness to the continued cult of the familiar essay with Charles Lamb, who else as patron saint, right? We talked about Charles Lamb. And we talk about Charles and Mary Lamb, right? And Charles and Mary Lamb uh, have this genetic problem of some kind of congenital kind of a psychiatric disorder, right? And that's why Charles Lamb doesn't get married. And we talked about Mary Lamb, who kills her parents off, right? And Charles Lamb, in spite of that, is dedicated and devoted to his sister and looks after her, right? Yeah. But and he doesn't get married because he doesn't want this kind of thing to continue in the family. Right? Yeah. It's like a man called Steinmetz, who is the person who creates General Electric and he's got a number of electric devices which are because of him. Right? He's a scientist and a mathematician. Right? And he has to run away from Germany in Hitler's time because he's a, of Jewish origin. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, he's one of these people who's a hunchback genius and he's got a chicken breast. Right? And uh, that kind of thing. Right? And he's also one of the people who doesn't get married because uh, of the genetic disorder that might uh, affect the children. And he comes from a family of people who have that physical, uh, a physical genetic disorder. Right? And Charles Lamb has a mental genetic disorder and a question of madness which uh, is there. Right? It lasted down to the, the 1930s in a few cases even longer. Right? Now, uh, the essay, right? So we have the Victorian age getting over. Queen Victoria dies in 1901, right? And after that, we still have people writing in Victorian style, right? Uh, in fact, some years ago, I used to teach uh, A.G. Gardiner, right? The delightful Gardiner. And he's the person called, his pen name is Alpha of the Plow, 
right? Yeah. So you get him, and his style of writing is still very Victorian, right? You have, uh, yeah, you have a very interesting essay which is talking about an accident which is taking place, right? And this is an accident of a bee dying, right? And this whole essay is about how bees are kept, what happens to bees, right? Yeah. So content-wise, it's important. And style-wise is interesting because he says, well, I can't write an essay, right? Yeah, and at the end of it, yeah, I can't write an essay. I don't know what to do. I'm taking my pen. I'm trying to think about it. That's how many of his essays begin, right? And at the end of it, you get the essay, which is actually complete, right? And it gets published, right? So that's the question which you have, right? Uh, yeah. So that's a different style of writing. I can't write, I write, can't write, I can't write, I can't write. That's what he's saying. And that's the essay, which is about, so the essay gets completed, though I can't write, right? Yeah. It lasted down to the 1930s, in a few cases, even longer. The essayists who billed and whiffed their way through the Silver Age ultimately helped to give the essay a bad name, not least in the schoolroom, where they were all too often held up as models. On the horrors of being told to write a light-hearted essay all about nothing, right? Yeah. Now, uh, one of the most important things of the 20th century is we're talking about the nothing, right? I don't know if any of you have uh, watched the movie or read the story by Michelle Ender, which is called, uh, yeah, uh, it's called, it's got something to do with the nothing. Never-ending story, right? Yeah. It's called to do with the nothing, right? And what is nothing? right and nothingness and all those kind of issues keep coming up because that's a very important philosophical position and an existential position that comes up right so the existential nothing is what happened to Sushant Singh Rajput right or what happens to everybody of us right when you say well there's nothing let's commit suicide right so that's something that can happen to any of us right anywhere right and we can feel that there's nothing left right like for instance, many of us might think, what's, what's the use of teaching? We get no students who are good enough. People don't read, people don't think, students don't think. That's what a university is supposed to be, right? A university is supposed to change the world, right? And we're not like JNU where the teachers and students fight for the education, right? Yeah, and against the government, fight for the state, fight for education, fight for ideas that are very important, right? And we are working in places like MSU where nobody fights for anything and they accept what is the status quo, right? And you will say, what's the use? Let's commit suicide. Or the university has already committed suicide, right? And nothing is left, right? Yeah, so what are we doing over here, right? And it, it doesn't matter if I work or I don't work, right? And I teach or I don't teach, right? I attend lectures or I don't, right? And please don't get into that. I'm not saying that that's a good idea. But all of us have to think about this, right? We have to think about what is this nothing about, right? And the never-ending story says we, we must not destroy the nothing, right? We must confront the nothing, right? And we must see what we do with this nothingness and this idea of existential boredom, right? I will talk about existentialism if uh, some of the essays lead us to there, and I think we will have to talk about it because it's a 20th century way of looking at the world, 
right? We can't not think about it, yeah, because we have to think about uh, very important essays by John Paul Sartre, right? Yeah, and Camus, uh, right? Camus uh, uh, is has written this essay, which I think every young person should read. Uh, a long, long essay, very philosophical, of course, right? And uh, he's a French student of Sartre, right? And it's called the myth of the Sisyphus, right? Where you have this man called Sisyphus, who is a, a, a character in Greek mythology, and I love mythology, right? Uh, I don't like people who say that mythology is history. No, mythology is mythology, and it's teaching me something, right? So I like it, right? Yeah, and, the, uh, and if you say that Sisyphus was a real man, that's very terrible, right? Yeah. Uh, and you actually try to find out who is Sisyphus, the Sisyphus in the myth and the Sisyphus of history, if there's a Sisyphus of history, are two different people, right? So the story of Sisyphus is this man is pushing up, he's, he's given a punishment by the gods to push this whole boulder up the, up the mountain, right? And when he reaches the mountain, the boulder comes down and he has to push it up again and you put it down again, right? Yeah, so that's how Kamu is talking about existentialism, right? Yeah, and that's what exactly never-ending story is all about, right? Yeah, you keep in, sorry, in another book by Michel Ender, uh, he's a German writer, right? Uh, he's talking about people going up and down the stairs, right? And when I read it, I didn't know about existentialism. I was a poor, ignorant math student, right? Yeah, so I knew what was all the things in maths, but I didn't know anything about uh, existentialism. Right? Yeah. So existentialism is talking about how do you put up with the boredom of life, right? And life is absurd, right? That's what Kamu talks about in the middle of the Sisyphus, right? And if even if life is absurd, don't commit suicide. Yeah. His teacher Sartre would say, if you messed it up, commit suicide. Yeah. So you have different points of view, right? Yeah. So some people say, well, you can commit suicide. Other people say. No, don't commit suicide. Life is meaningless, right? We all have these problems. Every one of us have these problems, right? Like we have to brush our teeth every day. We have to have a bath, right? We have to go to the toilet. We have to eat food, right? And these are existential problems, right? Yeah. And uh, it, most of us, at least once in our life, would think, why am I born to these parents? Why wasn't I born to those parents, right? Yeah. And then you begin to wonder, well, would life have been different if I was born to a royal family or if I was born uh, to a very poor family, right? I might even like that, right? Like for instance, whenever I travel on a train, I always imagine, I said, well, what was it, what would it be like to stay in a railway uh, quarter, right? And some people actually do, right? Yeah. And look at these lovely railway quarters. Maybe uh, life would be different and life would be interesting, right? Or what would it be uh, not to be a teacher and to be a railway guard, right? Or an engine driver, right? Or something else, right? Yeah. Oh, why am I a man or why am I a woman, right? Of course, I'm not talking about sex change, not at all, right? Yeah. But the question is, what would it be, and this is what literature deals with, right? How would you look at yourself as a man or as a woman? And I think when we talked about the autobiography, I talked about this woman called Gertrude Stein, which uh, has written this autobiography called uh, The Autobiography of uh, 
RSV class, right? Which is actually her autobiography, right? He's talking about this woman who's writing her autobiography, but actually Gertrude Stein's autobiography, right? So all those kind of complications are very more than welcome 